Throughout the COVID pandemic, you've probably put less miles on your car than you're used to. Though this might lead you to the conclusion that car dealerships are struggling to find buyers, many dealerships are actually thriving due to pent-up demand. On this episode of Marketside Chats, we sit down with third-generation car dealer Frank Giswaldo of International Autos to get a better understanding of how his family has adapted their business over time. Today, International Autos owns 25 dealerships across four Midwestern states, which makes them the perfect case study to see how COVID-19 has affected small businesses around the country. In addition, we'll be chatting with Frank about the current state of the auto supply chain, his PPP loan experience, and how he plans to approach the new direct-to-consumer business models seen in today's car industry. You're listening to the newest MarketSide Chat. Welcome back, everyone. We have a great episode for you today. We're going to be talking with Frank Giswaldo of International Autos in Chicago. We've got him on the line right now. Frank, thanks for being here. Thank you guys for having me. Of course. So, Frank, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit more about International Autos? Uh, Yeah, it's a uh, family business. Uh, It was originally started by my grandfather, uh, probably 60 years ago at this point. He had a couple <clears throat> Oldsmobile and I think a Ford dealership in Chicago. Um, my dad got into the business. Uh, after that, I uh, was able to grow it pretty successfully. Um, at one point, he combined all of his stores uh, into like a mall concept. This was in like the late 80s, early 90s. Um it was in Kenosha. He had like 11 or 12 franchises all under one roof. Um, sold that 10 or 12 years later, uh, actually to CarMax, <clears throat> and then kind of restarted. Um, he actually sold all but one franchise, moved that franchise up to Milwaukee, and started uh, acquiring dealerships again. And then when I got into the car business, uh, it's now about 15 years ago, full time. We kind of started to uh, aggressively pursue growth again. Uh, and now we're here. Uh, we've got about 25 stores in four states. Awesome. Uh, so I started right after college. Um, I've been working summers and free time, though, you know, since I was probably 12, 14 years old. Um, kind of ran the gauntlet, worked in all the different various departments for a summer. Uh, what was your favorite car. department? Oh, that's a good question. I actually liked um, writing service. Um, so when a customer comes into the dealership, yeah. uh, that's the person that kind of writes up their service ticket, asks them what's wrong with the car, et cetera, et cetera. And then they communicate that through system to the technician. Um, I only say that because it probably gave me the best customer experience because you see more customers on a consistent basis. Um, you know, when I was selling cars in the summer, I could, you know, talk to two or three people a day. So I didn't get a lot of uh, sales experience from it, but with service, you're writing up, you know, 15, 25 tickets a day. Yeah, absolutely. And what were some of the other departments that you worked in as well? 
Uh, I, wor- I worked in parts, stocked yeah. parts shelves, wrote parts tickets. Uh, you know, I washed detailed cars. Um, I worked in finance. I worked in sales, as I said. Um, and then for like my last summer or two, I shadowed uh, sales managers um, and was kind of like their assistant. And then uh, that led to when I graduated college, uh, I became a sales manager at one of uh, our stores. Yeah. So how would you say that your journey has crafted your management style that you have today, whether it be people you met, experiences you had? Uh, yeah. I mean, I worked, uh, I had the benefit from a very young age of being uh, in all the managers meetings. And I worked with uh, a lot of different managers at a lot of different stores when I was younger. Um, So I picked up uh, a lot of different tricks uh, or tips from many different people, including my dad and my dad's uh, best managers at the time. And it definitely helped me get a good start in the business. That's interesting, Frank. So what kind of growth ventures do new car dealerships pursue in order to maintain sales projections? Sure. So there's a couple different ways to acquire car dealerships. Um, and I guess it should state a dealership really, we're in the new car franchise uh, dealership world. Um, and all that really is is the right to sell that manufacturers make in a certain area. Um, and there's a couple different ways to acquire it. Uh, you can get a new point where a manufacturer awards you those uh, franchise rights. Uh, those are tough to get, um, you know, especially in uh, developed cities, um, you know, around Chicago or any, any bigger city or, or any populated area. Uh, most of the dealerships are already owned. Um, you know, there's not a lot of new growth there, but they do pop open from time to time. Um, in order to get one of those, you go through a, a, a process with the manufacturer where you submit a package. Uh, if a point becomes open, you submit a package. Um, they review it. They'll narrow it down to like the top three candidates. You've got to give them, uh, you know, the real estate side of things, tell them where you're going to put it. You've got to have a deal in place. You've got to tell them what you think that store can do, how you're going to get there, Um, you know, forecast it for them. And uh, you've got to show them the plans for the facility, et cetera, et cetera, all those financial things. You'll go meet with the manufacturer uh, once they narrow it down to the top three, and then they, they pick one to award it to. That's the best way to do it because you're not paying for the actual franchise rights. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also rare and more difficult uh, because a lot of dealership groups um, want those. Anytime that open points available, you know, any dealer in the area that knows about it's going to apply for. Well, I was going to say the other way is obviously to purchase it from an existing dealership. Um, easier to do, but uh, more expensive because you're paying that other dealer for those franchise rights on top of the. Uh, facility, the real estate, inventory, everything else. Yeah, absolutely. So which manufacturers are you working with the most? We kind of started uh, originally as 
a Highland Import Group. Um, we have, uh, you know, Audi, BMW, Benz, Porsche. But over the years, we've kind of diversified um, originally into non Highline imports. Um, and now we're buying some domestic stores. We just got uh, big enough to where we felt the need um, to diversify so we weren't too reliant on, you know, one type of car uh, or a couple manufacturers. Uh, the manufacturers represent now, we've got three Audi stores, um, two Mercedes-Benz stores, one BMW store, Porsche store, Jaguar, Land Rover, Volvo. I think that's it for the Highlines. And then we've got three Subaru stores, um, Toyota, Honda, Kia. I'm trying to think of what I'm missing. Volkswagen. We recently bought a Buick GMC store. That's kind of our, our foray into the domestic side. Um, I think that covers it. Awesome. Uh, so we know most of your locations are in the Midwest. Do you ever see yourself expanding in the future, maybe like across the country? Yeah, we would like to. Um, we have tried to get a couple stores in Florida, in the southeast. Okay. Um, there's a couple other areas that I think we're, we're trying to target um, mostly in, in the south. Um, you know, some of the higher growth areas where there is opportunity for new points. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like to cluster our stores. So we, you know, we're not the type of group that's going to buy one dealership in Florida. Um, you know, for us to go into that market, we would need to group a couple different stores together. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, then right opportunity comes along. Uh, we kind of work on like a hub and wheel process with our stores where we've got, you know, at least one main hub where we can share uh, staff and expenses from um, that, you know, other stores in the area, you know, one centralized office, accounting, things like that. Um, It just helps us keep costs down and profitability high when we've got that type of uh, system set up. It's also just much easier to run, um, easier to get people, so on and so forth. That's great, Frank. And, you know, one thing we're really curious about in the office is Tesla. You know, we've been following Tesla for the past couple months right now. And, you know, we're really curious as to how car dealership business models are going to compete with Tesla's direct-to-customer tactics. So, I could go off into a lot of different directions on the uh, Tesla effect. Um, To answer your specific question, both ourselves and a lot of other dealer dealer and dealer groups and the manufacturers that we represent are investing pretty heavily onto more of an online sales uh, delivery model. Um, What's happened with the pandemic has kind of sped that up, obviously. Um, Most dealers do now off, you know, you can do most of your shopping online you can buy, you know, set up payments, buy your car online, and we will deliver that car to you. The same goes for, for service. Um, the difficulty in that arises sometimes with uh, paperwork in the states. There 
you know, every state has a different set of paperwork. So it's hard for these manufacturers to get a uniformed process in place for it. Right. Um, and some of the automotive systems that we use in our dealerships that, you know, most all dealers use are a little antiquated. Um, and it, they don't necessarily communicate well with um, online systems, but that has been improving. It just took, took a while. So we're at the point now where we can offer that. Um, it, it's not direct because we're a, we're a dealer, right? So it's not like getting the car directly from the manufacturer. You're still going through a dealer. But from a customer standpoint, they can purchase cars online. Um, they can get it delivered to their homes. Um, it, so it's pretty much there now and at this point. Um, that's, you know, one way. Yeah, for, for sure. And then, interesting, yeah. Um, I guess one of the other things I was kind of wondering about, um, when you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, you're kind of stationed in, um, four different states, um, you know, just out of curiosity, um, do you find any state to be more, you know, hospitable for your type of business to thrive in or, you know, whether it be, you know, regulatory stuff by like local and state government or, um, like demand or stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, they all have their, their challenges. Um, Illinois is very difficult to work with uh, in in a lot different regards yeah the one benefit you do have in illinois though is uh, from a sales tax perspective um one percent of the state sales tax uh goes to i'm sorry half of one percent goes to the local municipal government And and when you're in the car business those numbers tend to be inflated because it's uh you've got big sales numbers, right? If you're buying a $50,000 car, that half a percent can be significant to a local government, especially when you multiply it over, you know, the entire dealership. Um, you know, the average dealership could have you know, 50, $60 million in sales a year. Um, so those in, in Illinois, the local municipalities are more welcoming to dealerships in their area. So it's easier to find locations here because of that, where in, you know, the other states we're in, Wisconsin, Indiana, Minneapolis, they don't get any revenue share, those local municipalities of the sales tax. So they tend not to want car dealers in their areas, which makes it hard to find uh, cities that let you in. And because of that, it's harder to find property for us. So that's the one thing that Illinois has as an advantage. Uh, but they're very difficult to work with um and pretty much everything else uh they are very aggressive auditing wise and their sales tax rules are kind of ambiguous they can't really define them well a lot of different dealers set set things up for example on a lease um differently and it's hard to get a straight answer so it kind of lends itself to you when you get audited because they're not definitive about it, they can take it different ways and charge you back um, kind of either way. Um, so it can be frustrating. Yeah. Um, Minneapolis is probably the easiest to work with from that perspective. Okay. They seem to have uh, their stuff together pretty well, but they all have their challenges and 
Frank, now that you're shifting more into everyday consumer vehicles, I imagine that you're competing with CarMax more than ever before, which I find ironic after hearing about your uh, grandfather's mall concept up in Kenosha. But how has that competition been with CarMax? Yeah, it's, uh, we kind of, you know, CarMax doesn't, that they might have one or two new car franchises. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're used only focus. We definitely do compete with them on the used car side. But from what we do, we tend to, uh, you know, like we can sell certified pre-owned cars where they can't. Um, so we kind of lean heavily on that. It's a little bit different of a market than they um, can dive into. So we've got an advantage there. Um, but yeah, we do, we do compete with them. You know, Carvana too is, um, you know, definitely growing, getting into that used car, uh, market. But again, there's, there are so many, you know, like I said, we're a new car dealer, new car franchises. We obviously also sell used cars, but I don't think people realize how many small, uh, used car lots there still are out there um in a lot of these cities um, and those are the guys that are really getting affected the most by the car maxes of the world and the carvanas of the world um they're taking a lot of of that share up it, it doesn't it hasn't really affected um our used car sales um in fact in a lot of ways because carvana is driving some of these smaller used car lots out of business um, it's it benefited us because we don't have, we don't, we're not competing with them anymore. Now, eventually they'll start to compete with us. Um, and it'll be tougher, but for now, uh, they're really crushing these small independent used car lots, um, and not really affecting the new car franchise dealers as much. Yeah. I'd love to keep talking about the industry a little bit. You know, how has demand been over the last few months during this pandemic? Yeah. Um, Surprisingly, you know, obviously when this first started um, during like the true shutdown, you know, months, days, um, March and April were were brutal months for us pretty much all around. Um, We were off, you know, as much as 60% in some stores. Mm -hmm. But once May hit, um, we got a little further into this. It kind of flipped. Um, there was a lot of pent up demand and business started to get better. And in the last 90 days, we've seen, uh, record months for, you know, July for June, July and August, um, from a profitability standpoint. Um, so it's actually in a weird way helped with some things that have helped our profitability. I'm Number curious one. to know. I'm curious to know what was like the key driver in those like the most the record breaking months. What, what was causing all that growth? So I think it first is probably pent up demand, um, but beyond that is there's a there was probably a shortage of cars too, right? Correct. Yeah, had to shut down you know all those factories yeah. for two months, um, and the industry in general had a problem. It had had too much too much inventory, which obviously hurts margins. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, it affects our, it increases our overall expense structure because we have got to pay floor plan interest on, on that new car line and inventory. Um, so that kind of reset 
the entire industry in a good way, um, where all of a sudden inventory got short, demand peaked because of the pent up demand, and it kind of was just a unique circumstance um, on a supply curve where our margins increased drastically, our expense um, went down because we weren't carrying as much inventory. Um, you know, service was way up because uh, pent up demand um, and our profitability just spiked. Um, whether or not that continues is a different story, but we're still yeah. very short inventory wise. We're probably in a point now where we're short to the detriment. It's a very fine line. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, uh, what is the whole process in getting like new inventory into your stores? Do you, is it is it delayed because of the whole pandemic or? Correct. It's usually uh, it's a allocation system. Different manufacturers handle it differently. Some manufacturers do weekly allocations. Okay. So they look at your cars at your store. They look at your uh, incoming cars. You've got a sales rate, like a 75-day selling rate, and they match you up with a day supply. So, you know, certain manufacturers use a 90-day supply. Certain ones use a 150-day supply. Gotcha. The you know, the high lines on the lower side, you know, the non-luxury stuff's on the higher side there. And they kind of match you up either weekly or monthly. So they'll give you an allocation of the cars weekly or monthly based on your day supply. Um, so when COVID hit and the plant shut down, you know, we didn't get any cars for a 60-day stretch. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we were lucky enough while our, our sales were off, drastically we were still open we were still selling cars we were still servicing cars so we weren't getting any cars and we were selling through inventory and then when things kind of opened back up um, we really started to sell cars so it it got quickly Um, i'm interested to hear how many employees you oversee and how your employees were affected during this pandemic we have about a thousand employees um and I assume you had to make some pretty tough decisions, you know, when it came to keeping or letting people go um, during the pandemic. We, yes, um, you know, because of, we're deemed um, a necessary company or gotcha. whatever the okay. term. Yeah. Um, so we're able to stay open, but it was under very specific rules about how many people could be in the showroom, how many people could be in, you know, our service area. So we couldn't keep everyone at the dealership for for regulation reasons, for, you know, safety reasons. And it just made no sense um, from a financial standpoint because we were doing 50% less business for a while. Um, We probably cut 10% um, of our employees Mm -hmm. and then temporarily furloughed another 30%. Okay. so we reduced our staff by about 40, some cases a little more, some cases a little less. But, um, you know, we temporarily furloughed that 30%. And after about six weeks, seven weeks, whenever the, you know, shutdown uh, stopped, um, we probably brought back half, you know, right away and then another half a couple weeks later, um, you know, business needed it. Um you know, I would say we're still probably at 95% of where we were prior. Um, but that's 
just because we realized we could do the same or more with less exactly. people. Yep. A lot of businesses probably also realize that. Uh, but the employee part was probably the, the hardest um, situation. That, you know, nobody really knew what was going on. Um, you, you know, we try to do our best um, from a safety perspective for these people. We, you know, we're responsible for them. They've got families. Um, you know, obviously we're not going to try to make force anyone to come in and work, but we were open. We wanted to remain open. Majority of our employees wanted to work. Um, so we just needed to figure out the best way to do it, the safest way to do it. Did you, uh, did you have to go through any, um, like PPP process and in light of that or we did? Yeah. How, how, how was that process? Was it, is it simple or was, did you find it to be tedious? It, um, at first was, uh, a mess. Yeah. You know, they kept changing the rules. Um, I don't know if I'm going to say rules. Yeah. I want to say no one was really like clear on what was going on or how it worked. Uh, Correct. They kept changing the qualifications. Yep. Um, they kept changing the process. Um, you know, everyone went through a bank to actually submit the application. We've got really good relationships with banks. Um, we're, you know, cause we've got to rely on them pretty heavily. And yeah, we've got yeah, yeah. such poor plans with them. So we had that advantage, but they didn't know what was going on either. Um, you know, we probably had, you know, between me and my dad and our CFO, you know, 25 conference calls over a three week period and 90% of it, you know, ended up not mattering because they just kept changing it so much. So you try to establish a process to get these applications in, um, the right way. And then a day later, the rules would change and it was kind of mute. So the first two, three weeks of it were very frustrating. Um, when they launched the applications, that day was a mess. Banks still didn't know what to do. Um, you know, we don't. We used two main banks for all of our stores. So one was doing it one way, the other was doing it the other way. Um, but once we got like two to three days in, it actually was pretty smooth after that. Um, so, and I, you know, we haven't. The second part of it, um, I don't know how that's. Gonna yeah, go. I was curious. I know they're they're talking about a second round of PPP loans. So do you think you'll end up taking advantage of those or? Oh, um, we won't. I'm talking about more of the forgiveness. Um, oh, oh, the forgiveness loan. aspect. I got you. Okay. Um, I, you know, the, it was supposed to be like 90 days, I think, after, but they keep pushing that yeah, hard yeah, back. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know how we're going to handle it, how we're going to fare there, what we're going to end up doing. Um, to be honest, I kind of stopped putting a lot of effort into thinking about it, um, because I don't know that they know how it's going to happen yet. So, um, I don't want to, you know, we don't, we're not going to work ourselves up into, uh, you know, tizzy thinking about something that's going to change again 50 times. Yeah. And how does a year like 2020 even compare to a year like 2008? There's some similarities. Um, you know, it's, this happened much quicker, mm-hmm. um, but from like an uncertainty standpoint, from like a feel standpoint on the financial side, yeah. um, it was kind of similar. You know, I was just only a couple years out of, out of college then um, in 2008, but 
the, just the general uncertainty of what was going to happen on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, what to do with our employees, uh, the general feel was kind of similar, um, you know, but obviously this unfolded differently. Um, the government reacted much quicker. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's still uncertainty, but, um, from a financial standpoint, it seems like the recovery was quicker, at least, you know, in the short term as we're talking today. Um, so, you know, we're in 2008, 2009, it was, it was slower. Yeah. So kind of going back a a little bit, um, I know you mentioned that you graduated in the recession. Um, what, what school did you go to again? Uh, Fordham university. Okay. In New York. How'd you, how'd you end up picking that school out of curiosity? Um, so I went to Loyola Academy. Um, it's a Jesuit, uh, high school. Fordham's a Jesuit, uh, university. My high school probably sends 10 to 20 kids a year to Fordham. Mm -hmm. So I knew some kids that had graduated ahead of me that, that were there. Um, they liked it. I liked the idea of going to school in New York city. Um, I kind of knew that I was going to come back and work in the car business. Um, Uh so for me, I thought it would be, you know, and that business is and was in the Midwest. Um, so I liked the idea of going out East, um, and going out to New York city for that experience. Yeah. And, uh, so how did, you know, kind of going into that, um, and choosing Fordham and, you know, kind of having an idea that you were going to get back into the car business. Did that have any, um, you know, influence on what major you decided to pursue, um, or things you, you'd like preferred to study to help you kind of be in a more advantageous position once you were ready? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was in the business school. I majored in yeah. finance and marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, two things that do apply to, uh, the automotive business, you know, did I, am I using those things on a daily basis today? Probably not. Um, you know, the thing with automotive business is it's it's very specific in a lot of ways. Um, it's unique. There's not a lot of other businesses like it kind of combines you know, parts of a lot of different types of businesses, you know, you've got the, the retail side of things, um, you know, the customer service side of things, you've got marketing, you've got finance, you've got real estate. So you need general knowledge. And I think uh, being in the business school and those two majors helped me with, with that. Um, but, you know, like I said, my business, is, it's very specific. So your most of your learning is on the job. Yeah. And then kind of, you know, touching on the, the marketing aspect of, of things, I, I got to imagine that trend has probably shifted for you during the pandemic as well. Yes. Um, it, again, it's, you know, a lot of stuff that happened during the pandemic, it really just, um, sped up yeah. things that are already starting to, to happen, yeah. uh, or were happening over the years. Um, you know, where, our marketing model was 
80% digital, you know, it became a hundred percent digital. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way we spoke to our customers obviously changed. Um, you know, it had to be a, a specific message about what we could offer for them during this time. Um, you know, like we touched on earlier, it was more about the fact that we can, you can buy a car online, yeah. you can set up a service appointment online and we can deliver it to you and we can do it safely. Um, you know, and I, but as far as like the mix of things, you know, we were already pretty heavy, uh, digital only. It just made it even heavier. Definitely. Um, so I guess kind of, uh, you know, go, going off that, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, we pay att- really close attention to um, in the market is um, Tesla and Nikola because they're, you know, like the, the one of those, you know, highly volume traded stocks right now. Um, I, I guess it would kind of be interesting to, you know, hear your perspective on, you know, the business model of Tesla and, you know, what pitfalls you see with it or, you know, benefits. Yeah. So, uh, like I said earlier, like I can go on a lot of different directions with Tesla. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a hot button in the the dealer community. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they found a way to skirt, um, you know, the franchise model, um, which, you know, from a selfish perspective, um, not something I <laughs> like. But uh, beyond that, it's because of their stock success. Yeah. Uh, you're kind of seeing all these other manufacturers chase that a little bit. Um, there's a really big disconnect, and I think a lot of people would say this, between, you know, their company's valuation and, and what they're actually doing yeah um i would know, i would agree with you yeah on a whole just talk about the electric vehicle segment yeah for a second it's less than five percent of, of sales um i was at a meeting a couple months ago you know originally i think they were expecting by 2025 it to be like 12 percent. now they've even brought that down to seven or eight percent so, while that's a, a big jump, you're still talking about a pretty insignificant amount of sales, um, you know, from a national perspective. Yeah. You talk about, you know, and then on top of that, they're not the only ones selling electric vehicles. Um, and all these manufacturers, especially, you know, the, the import ones, are spending an enormous um, portion of their R and D budgets on all electric vehicles and have been for the last two or three years. So Tesla has a pretty big head start from a technology standpoint. Um, but you know, these manufacturers are catching up and and will continue to catch up. Um, they've also got the advantage of the dealer network in place. Again, I could be saying this from, um, a jaded perspective here, but just from an infrastructure standpoint, um, you know, they have facilities already in place. They have service centers already in place. They have sales networks already in place. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, yet they are still chasing Tesla. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. They're definitely afraid of them. Uh, it's Tesla's definitely altered the way they think about the business. And like I said, you know what they're spending their R and D money on. Um, but there's still a huge disconnect between what's actually going on, you know, today at, at dealerships in the auto sales market yeah. and what test valuation is. Yeah. Um, you know, our, we probably sell less than 2% um, electric vehicle. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I obviously it can continue to grow, but yeah. it, it's going to happen overnight. Yeah. And I do think these other manufacturers are going to catch up from a technology standpoint. Yeah. I think you can, you know, get kind of off that point. You can almost see it with, um, you know, the GM and Nikola partnership that, um, happened in the recent past. Um, and then, you know, they had a lot of, you know, allegations from, you know, the activist short seller, um, you know, that's still kind of yet to be remedied. So, I, I, I'm assuming that kind of, you know, lines up with your thinking of, you know, some manufacturers trying to catch up and, you know, partnering with, you know, like GM partnering with Nikola in a sense. Correct. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, you've got uh, companies like Volkswagen and Audi, which is, you know, uh, have the same ownership group, it's the biggest car company in the world that is now committed, you know, pretty much their entire R&D budget to electric vehicles. Um, and that, you know, you can go and kind of go on down the line. Benz the same way, BMW the same way. Um, these are really big companies with a ton of infrastructure and a ton of money um, that are going all out at chasing Tesla, which again is, that's the disconnect. Um, you know, these companies that outsell them by, you know, thousand to one are are chasing tesla which um is a credit to tesla but at the same point in time it's there's a lot of force and a lot of power being directed into uh ev technology um and it's directed straight at that tesla um so i i think they will they obviously have their fans um they you know they obviously have a ton of momentum especially in the, the market side of things, but they're going to face a lot more competition in the next couple of years for, for a very small segment. Yeah. And that's it's not, it's not even the mention, you know, their progress they're making towards, you know, stage five automation. Um, Correct. And we think a lot of other companies, you know, are kind of spending or allocating too much of their research and development budgets towards electric vehicles while also having to deal with the fully automation problem. So Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of disruptors um, coming down the line, or you know, already in process in this business. You know, EVs, um, the automated side of things, the ride sharing side of things, um, the Tesla aspect, um, you know, online direct sales, which we kind of touched on. Um, and there's just a it's a there's a big disconnect between what these manufacturers are are spending their money on and what's actually going on right now in the marketplace. So it's going to be really interesting to see kind of how it all unfolds. A lot of people making really big bets um, when it's not necessarily uh, going on right now. Yeah. 
And we should also point out that Teslas have much more manufacturing problems upon delivery than just about every other car company in America right now. So I'm sure that that will be a big point for you moving forward, uh, being that you have your own garages, your own ports of contact at your store. Correct. I think it's, uh, it helps to have a, a direct contact. Um, you know, that's just the customer ser- service side of things. Um, you're working with a, a person. Um, you know, like my customers can get a hold of me, so they can get a hold of the company owner. Yeah. Um, it's more personal touch than working with a, a you know a company. It definitely helps. Um, but there's another. You know, obviously they did it for a reason. Um, you know, dealerships make money. Um, you know, we're essentially middlemen, mm-hmm. so there's a, a very large financial component to cutting out the middleman. Um, so I, I get it, but that's it, it's uh, it does bring in some some challenges, and we definitely have a competitive advantage in a lot of different ways uh, because of the dealer network. Yeah. Um, I, I guess to kind of, you know, tie things up, uh, here, you know, a lot of our, um, audiences, you know, mainly in the, you know, 21 to 30 year old demographic, um, what would be your kind of, um, advice for, you know, people, you know, like say like, you know, us going out of college and graduating kind of like how to decide to buy your first car and, and stuff like that. A good question. Um, I think people tend to overthink um, certain aspects of it. Yeah. Probably, uh, you know, don't underthink other aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's so much focus on, you know, price um, and making sure you get a good deal. Um, you know, there's, and for good reason, but there's like the, the thought and the idea that when you go to a car dealership, you're getting screwed, right? Yeah. Um, that's a, that's what everyone assumes. Yeah. So, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, we're really no different than any other retailer. Yeah. Um, and yeah, in the eighties, um, customers didn't have, information available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were probably getting price gouged on, on cars. But at, at this point in time, um, with all the information from a pricing perspective that's available to customers, yeah. um, I'm not going to say we're, you know, we're a one price or a fixed price model, yeah. but there's very little difference at this point in time, um, you know, in what we sell a car to this person versus, you know, the next person, um, you know, most, it kind of is what it is, yeah. um, in a lot of different ways. So I think a lot of people spend a lot of their time thinking about price, trying to get the best price. Yeah. Um, and I'm not telling that they shouldn't. Um, but you know, the, the information that's available is pretty much accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, unless you, you know, there still are, dealers out there um that care that hold that you know old school um shady car guy process in place but 95 percent of the new car franchises are um you know pretty much the same as any other retailer 
Um, and I, I would focus more on, you know, the, the car over the price. Yeah. Um, you know, cause it, the deal is going to be the deal. It's not going to be that much drastically different than, uh, anything else. You know, our, our margins are, are pretty thin on the new car side these days. Um, used cars are priced aggressively. It's more, a a turn inventory turn game, um, than a high margin game mm-hmm. at this point. Um, we all use the same tools to price our cars. Yeah. So we know that, you know, and if, it, you know, it's, you can go online and look at, you know, a thousand cars in a small period of time. So it's, uh, cars are priced properly, you know, 99% yeah. of the time. Um, it's probably the yeah. most transparent pricing we've ever seen to this point, yeah, you know, fact. with like Kelly blue book and you know, all those different websites that come out and try to value cars. Yep. Correct. Um, you know, there's still, there's still a little room there, but for the most part, it's, you know, it's pretty much getting close to a fixed price model. Um, and it's become more, like I said, about inventory turn. Mm-hmm. Um, now the service side of things is different, but yeah. Um, you know, when you're buying your first car, um, just find a car you really like. Yeah. Um, I do typically recommend leasing versus buying. Um, I know that there are people out there uh, that are against it for certain reasons, mm-hmm. uh, but I just, you know, why put your money into a depreciating asset? Um, especially when you're younger, um, you know, save that down payment, um, put it into an investment, you know, buy a house with it, you know, whatever you want to do with it and just lease a car, uh, you know, between the depreciating asset aspect of it, uh, manufacturers heavily incentivize, um, leasing, uh, they subvent the rate. So they'll buy them down. Um, and typically, you know, a lot of people don't like it because they don't think they can get out of a lease at any point in time. Um, for the most part, that's not true. Um, there's a lot of different points in a lease cycle that you'll actually have some equity in your car and you can get out, you can trade out of it. Um, now, if, you know, a financial crisis hit that is not going to hold through, um, but more often than not, you know, at least since I've been in the business, leasing's been the way to go. Um, and it, again, save your money for something better. Um, you know, lease a car and just keep doing it. Great. Sounds like, sounds like awesome advice. Uh, we definitely really appreciate that as coming from someone who has as much experience as you, um, definitely want to, we really appreciate you, appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Uh, I certainly learned a lot and, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a great time meeting you and learning about your history in the industry. I appreciate it guys. Yeah. Um, thanks for the questions. I hope it wasn't too boring. <laughs> Take care. Thank you, Frank. Have a nice one.